morning. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 and it's local current affairs program subject ACT. My name is Becca Posterino, the executive producer of the program, and today we explore the issue of wounded healers, the people who look after the wounded, and how to identify signs and symptoms of trauma and anorexia nervosa, and how to seek help and how to rebuild and thrive beyond these experiences. If our discussion raises concerns for any listeners today, a list of resources will be shared at the end of the program. For the moment, I would like to welcome Kristen Holzaffel, author of Selfless, A Social Worker's Own Story of Trauma and Recovery. Welcome to the studio, Kristen. Thank you, Becca. It's a joy to be here. Selfless, I'll just describe, and this is from your website, Selfless is a story of your work on the front line of social work and how after several years in this relentlessly fast-paced environment, you develop symptoms of vicarious trauma. It is a story of how trauma rises in ways we least expect and in your case led to the development of anorexia nervosa. This story tells of Kristen's experience as a wounded healer and as a recovered woman wanting to make a difference to other helpers struggling with the isolation and shame associated with real selflessness. So Kristen how do we differentiate from a really stressful period which we all have Mm. in life what are the signs and symptoms of trauma? Well I think you're absolutely right in that we all have these stressful moments you know you don't want to detract from from the fact that life is a series of ups and downs you know and that's okay you know it's completely okay to have moments where it feels like everything is all going to pot and nothing's Mm. ever going to be right again. But I suppose the difference between that and the symptoms of trauma is that trauma is more, it's more pervasive. It feels more like maybe the difference between feeling sad and depression, maybe the difference between trauma and feeling like you've been through been through the mill you know like that period of stress you know trauma is more that sensation of I'm never going to recover it's all over this is catastrophe nothing will ever be right again and it's also something that your body takes over from you a little bit um, it's a little bit the the fight and flight syndrome that we're all aware of takes over and your body goes into a a sensation that you don't really have an awful lot of control over. Mm. What's Um, an example of that, Kristen, if you wouldn't mind sharing? Sure. In my experience, I can pinpoint trauma coming back to a particular night. Like it was very, very specific. It wasn't something where there was a build-up over a period of time. And on that night, I can tell you that there's a sensation of adrenaline running through your body and a sensation of wanting to I will do anything to get away from Mm. this and again I think that was coming back to the flight so in my case I think that was my body's chosen response Mm. and trauma in particular happens when that fight or flight response is thwarted in some way Mm. if your body is trying to fight or flight and there is something stopping you from taking those two very specific actions often the trauma response is to keep going back over it keep mm. keep trying keep and this is often later on sorry to interrupt yeah so you keep going back to the trauma to try and resolve it exactly yes okay and often later on down the track where you have a common symptom of trauma is um, nightmares lots of bad dreams that's actually the process of the body trying to keep trying 
to fight or flight until they actually sort this, until Mm. it happens. So it's going to keep going over and over again until you have a successful outcome. Is trauma something that can creep up on us, I guess, after what you've just Mm. said then? Because if we don't identify as these recurring efforts to resolve, but they're not resolved, Mm -hmm. that kind of explains that something a characteristic of trauma, it does creep up on you then. Absolutely. And what I've mentioned in my book is that the three different terms that are often used of burnout, compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma are all quite different. Burnout and compassion fatigue are two things that often do happen over time and they are a little bit the, the analogy that people use of the um, the lobster in the hot water you can sort of boil to death without realizing it because it, it happens so slowly trauma is a little bit different in that often most often it is something that happens out of the blue and it is very quick mm. and it's a specific moment that sinks right deep into you mm. as opposed to just one nasty experience which kind of rattles you but doesn't sink right into to the heart of you into the core of you you, that's Mm. right and something that changes a very deep-seated view of the world maybe you're it's not something that you ever really think you know you sit down and think about but that yes my view of the world is that the world is generally safe and Mm. mostly filled with pretty good people and then something happens that changes that view that actually maybe the world isn't a safe place to be in Mm. and that's again comes back to a single episode which will change that that's the moment that we would call trauma so you were a social worker yes caring for others healing others and it took its toll how do we protect ourselves as carers or how does anyone for that matter living or working where they are exposed to distressing experiences or Mm. witnessing or hearing first or second hand these distressing experiences Mm. oh my goodness there's so much that we can do I think there is a little bit of a feeling maybe out there that burnout and trauma path the course, you know, those sorts of things that, oh, yes, if you're going to work in a, um, a frontline helping profession, then that's something to be expected. I really reject that. I think that there's so much more that we can do. And I think it's really dangerous to say that it's something that is expected should happen, you know, is bound to happen. It doesn't have to happen. It's some, There's so much more that we can do to ameliorate the effects of burnout and trauma amongst our helpers we need our helpers you know we need them doing the work that they do the vital work that they do Mm. we can't afford to let them burn out and disappear (laughs) you know we need every one of them absolutely (laughs) um and one of the one of the biggest things that i think we can do is talk about it um is to actually acknowledge the risk that frontline workers take. I think sometimes we acknowledge the Mm. physical risks that frontline workers take. Often the the traditional frontline workers, um, I think we include, would be your your police, fire and ambulance. And I don't think there would be any arguments that those three are your emergency responders. My argument would be that they are emergency responders, but there are also other emergency responders Mm. out there, including anything where you've got you know a 24-hour crisis 
support line, I'm thinking sexual assault counsellors, domestic violence counsellors, child protection officers. I mm. would classify all of those as emergency responders. Men- mental health nurses. Mental health mm. nurses, and, absolutely. And yeah. affiliated. Look, look there's, a, there's a long list of other people mm. who I would include as emergency responders outside of police, fire and ambulance. And I think that there is a bit of a culture of not talking yes. about the issues of burnout and compassion fatigue for lots of different reasons. I think there is a bit of a sense of shame surrounding it. It's almost like a bit of a double standard, you mm. know, where we work to fight the effects of stigma and shame amongst our clients and customers, and yet we apply such different standards to ourselves. And So true. What you give, you don't give to yourself. Yes, that's right. I think I could speculate as to why that's the case. I think maybe a lot of emergency responders are flat out busy Mm. all the time yes and there's often a shortage staff shortages and I think maybe there's a bit of a feeling of no I shouldn't complain I shouldn't raise this as as an issue because there's not enough people to deal with this if I take myself offline that will mean that my colleagues have to shoulder extra work that they just don't have the capacity for I don't want to contribute to the problem I want to help the problem Mm -hmm. these people enter the profession because they want to help they don't want to be part of the problem and it's really hard for them to stick up a hand and say I really struggled with that today. I thought went home thinking that I was okay and then now I come in the next day realising, no, I'm really not. Mm. I need some help with that. Let's share our stories. Mm. Let's talk about the moments where we really felt low, you know, where something happened where we just had no energy left. We felt like we couldn't do the job. We felt like the job was weighing us down. When I started writing this book, I looked around to see what other books I could find. Is there anything out there of a similar kind of story? I couldn't find anything. Are you serious? There was nothing on this topic? Nothing that I could find from a helper's perspective, Mm. yeah, about what it felt like from being behind the other side of the desk. Yeah, and I thought, look, this is important to share these stories. I'm going to write my own. Because perhaps that's the process of writing and sharing, maybe Mm. not just writing but sharing stories per se, is when you move it from the internal to the external, I would imagine, and Mm. I'd like to ask you this now, has that changed your experience? Has it, did it alter your experience of the trauma by sharing your story? Absolutely. I feel like, look, writing the book was enormously hard. It took me four years to write and it was an agonising four years. It revisited things that I really did not want to revisit. I suppose part of trauma is that you will do anything to avoid going down that same path, Mm. thinking about those things that brought you to that moment. But I'm so glad I persisted and I fought through it because I I just had this burning need to say what I wanted to say, to Mm. actually get it on the paper and be finished, you know, to look at it and say, okay, I've articulated the way that it felt. And it's amazing how seeing it written and talking about it has released such a weight off my shoulders. Mm. It doesn't feel anymore like it's a, it's wrong, my deep, dark secret, you know, my terribly shameful story. It's now, it's just, it's light. It's mm. something that I talk about and say, it happened, I've recovered, I'm doing well. And, and it doesn't define you for the rest of your life. And it doesn't define me for the rest of my life. That's right. It's now something that I think I can share the story 
in a positive way and say it's something that will hopefully help other helpers Mm. as they continue in their helping profession. Mm. How did vicarious trauma manifest for you Mm. and how did the anorexia intertwine with with that particular moment? moment? Well, it certainly blindsided me. I'm sure it blindsided everyone at the time. I was in my late 20s when all of this happened and I was probably like a lot of people still thinking along the stereotypical lines of Mm. those with with eating disorders are you know in their early teenage years and I didn't fit the profile at Mm. all and at the moment that it, it you know that it happened I didn't think that anorexia was what it was I didn't have a name for it at that Mm. point it was it was quite some time before I was willing to label it anorexia Mm. at that point it was more I'm quitting eating right now it felt very much like a safety thing it Mm. felt like it was a feeling of initially like for the first week or two it was I'm too stressed to eat I've got Mm. too much going on I can't think about eating And very, very quickly, like I'd be talking within a week or two, I somehow, and this is in retrospect, I somehow made a connection with I'm not eating and that makes me safe. And what made me safe was I took, when this happened, I took 10 days off work Mm -hmm. and the GP gave me a doctor certificate to say, look, Kristen, you need to get your head in line here. Take some time off to work out what it is you want to do. I took those 10 days off and stayed at home in bed, not eating. And I think maybe that very, very quick time turned into safety equals sitting in a darkened room with no food. It really astounded me in retrospect, you know, how quickly these things happen, how deeply its claws sink in. And take a hold. How it takes a hold of Mm. you, yes. And it's an addiction. That's the other thing we're talking about, symptoms of trauma. Trauma often manifests in addictive and compulsive behaviours. Trauma often results in alcoholism, Mm. people who take drugs, people who don't eat, you know, anorexia or um, other eating disorders. It's really a very, very common symptom Mm. of trauma. And it's, uh, it's only that I can see in retrospect what they mean when they say, it happens really quickly. I mean, I've, I've heard stories about people who've said that they had their first drink and they knew straight away from that first drink that they weren't going to give this up. This mm. was something they were going to keep drinking. This was great. They've hit on, you know, the the panacea. You know, yes. This was going to be it. That's very much what it felt like. I had a week or two without food and my brain went, that's it. Okay, that's what's going to keep me safe. As you say, it was about safety. Absolutely. So in retrospect, yeah. when you look or, or delve into that person that was having those feelings, mm. it was about that need to feel safe. And yes. that's that's Absolutely. where you began. And Yeah. It was a feeling of uh, very, very difficult to describe because everything that's going on is quite wordless. It's all very much an instinctive behaviour, yes. which is hard to put into words yes. because it just happens so... Primally. Primally, thank you. That's the best way to put it. It's not a physical safety. It's not like I felt that I was at risk of someone hurting breaking you. into the home and hurting me. I felt like it was my 
core yes. self, soul. I don't yes. know what those words are. That was, that was what was at risk. And that was when I say I felt like I was unsafe. It felt like my identity, maybe. Yes. And I think like a lot of helpers, I had intertwined, you know, mm. I'm a helper. That was my identity. I'm someone who helps other people. Mm. I'm a nice person, a kind person, a person who does good things. Mm. Feeling like I was not able to do my job, I was not a helper, somehow undid all of that and it meant I was questioning myself, I was questioning my identity, I was questioning who am I if I'm not a helper and it felt like my body panicked is the best way I can describe Mm. it. It almost kind of wasn't my head which panicked, it was my body which panicked and said, okay, I've got too much to deal with here. Food will not be involved. One will continue staying in a darkened room with no food until it's all safe again. Mm. And, of course, there isn't anywhere to run to. There wasn't any safe place where it wasn't like I had a a danger approaching me from the left, therefore I will run to the right. It Mm. It was a very amorphous threat. So, and an amorphous threat which had no particular end. I really didn't know how it was going to be resolved, if it was possible for it to be resolved. So, I just kind of shrunk into myself, I think, as a, um, I did the turtle (laughs) and um, shrunk into myself in response to this amorphous threat. And of course, it wasn't resolved for quite some time. It wasn't resolved. I continued on in the same job, hoping that the threat would disappear for another year you know that's a long Mm. time to have what felt like a sort of Damocles hanging over your head Mm. um, and to feel like you're unsafe for that long and that gave it plenty of time for the eating disorder to bed down um, and develop those eating habits of not eating enough skipping meals you know that kind of really disordered eating behaviors Um, And it really wasn't long before I was headed down the path of um, losing lots of weight and being quite unwell. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, it wasn't just not eating as well. I was eating a very narrow range of foods. Mm. I was only eating, you know, this at particular times or um, so by the time you know, sort of six months, one year down the track, I had was really experiencing a lot of symptoms of malnutrition mm. in addition to having lost a lot of weight. Inside of a year, 18 months or so, my hair was noticeably thinner. I was constantly pale. I was constantly cold. Uh, you don't sleep well. It's It's really unpleasant. Mm. <laughs> I mean, maybe it sounds obvious to say it doesn't feel good to have an eating disorder but maybe that someone who would say that might also say well why don't you just start eating again if it feels so bad why don't you just start eating again there's there's some safety that you feel talking about safety again there's something that feels rewarding about that sense of being hungry and um um like a discipline yes yeah you it's like you can see the rewards putting rewards in inverted commas yes you can see some kind of tangible result yes of your efforts you know and an that achievement just, and a sense of achievement yes which spurs you on okay i'm headed in the right direction i'm doing this right i'll just keep doing what i'm doing um 
and it's it's an incredibly slippery slope. Um, it it astounds me looking back on it now how quickly it takes hold, and how quickly things start falling off the cart. Thank you for sharing that very personal story, Kristen. That's an honour for us to hear that. And I'd just like to take us into a bit of a musical interlude. I know this song has a particular resonance with you. It does, yes. And I'm glad that we can play it as part of this program. It's Evanescence with Bring Me to Life. I'm sure a lot of people will know this track, so I hope you enjoy it as well as the listeners. Wake me up in 
You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on Local Current Affairs Program Subject ACT. And that was, I guess it's a classic track from Evanescence, Bring Me to Life. And before that, we were talking about a very deeply personal experience of our guest today, Kristen Holzaffel, who is an author of a book called Selfless, which is a social worker's own story of trauma and recovery. And I'd like to focus on the recovery for our last bit. But before we engage in the positive, I just wanted to respect your story with what you just shared with us. Were you able to speak about this during Mm. the depth of of your experience? Did it take them to recognise it? Were they able to recognise it first? Mm. Or did you need to find the strength, if that's for want of a better word, it may not Mm. have been strength that you needed, but were you able to find the resolve to ask them and mm. your your community for help. That's really sad, that part, actually, because I, I feel like, no, at the time I was, I felt nothing but fear. Oh, I suppose you'd say fear and shame. What I was feeling inside was fear and I was ashamed that I was afraid. So fear and shame were the two emotions which were making up me there was no nothing else going on except that Mm -hmm. that really prevented me from reaching out I think that's very common for a lot of people it really frustrates me I think on a practical level for helpers where there's an expectation helpers will ask for help if they need help because you know how to you know, ask others to ask for help. Because that's right. Of you know course, how to you, guide you'll others. You know how to help. How to you know help yourself and how to ask when you mm. need help. You don't. You You're really still human. Don't. Um, sometimes you either don't recognise it that you need help, or you might recognise it and say, "Oh no, no, look, other people have it worse than me. I, I'll allow. You know, they should ask for help before me. Or no, they don't have time to deal with my problems. Or." I don't want to burden them with my problems. No, sometimes you do need to step in and say, are you okay? Sometimes they might need a little bit of a prompt. Sometimes you might need to ask several times before they're actually able to say, yeah, I think you're right. I think I do need some help. I didn't want to reach out to other people because I felt like they wouldn't understand why Mm. I was so afraid. I didn't understand why I was so afraid, so... I felt like it would be impossible for anybody else to to understand why. And I also felt that the deep shame of why, of not being able to do the job. I've, I'd really been raised in a um, good Protestant work <laughs> ethic kind of family and you do the job, you know. How, however hard it is, you step up, you do the job, you turn up for your nine to five and you do your best. You hold your ground. You hold your ground, that's right. And that sensation of I can't do this I thought they're not going to get it they're not going to understand it's not a matter of oh I don't really feel like going to work today or gee I'd rather not I mean I actually can't Mm. I really can't they're not going to get it Mm. and how did that change for you when they recognized and when they saw just how much you were suffering Mm. were they able to step in there with you and hold you it must have been really hard for everybody involved I'm sure it must have been very hard for them thinking I don't understand what's going on with Mm. my daughter or my friend I don't get it I'd like to finish on a positive note Mm. because I think you've come so far and there is positive 
light at the end of your tunnel and this is where you are today. You started a pet sitting business during the writing of the four years of when you wrote your book. Again, it kind of is, it's a surprising turn. (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've always done pet sitting. I've, I've loved animals forever. In 2014, I started up a website and um, started my Canberra's Friendly Pet Sitter and I love it. I'm writing on the side. So I'm a social worker and a writer and a pet sitter. Kristen, it's been a a real pleasure and honour to have heard your story. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you so much. We're in the studio today talking to author of the book Selfless, Kristen Holzaffel. She is a social worker and it is a story of trauma and recovery, most importantly, and it deals with many issues, including anorexia nervosa, which is a very personal story to Kristen that she has very graciously shared with us. If any of the content in our program today has raised concerns for our listeners, Kristen, would you like to mention a couple of worthy or reputable organisations in the ACT that listeners can go to. I was thinking Beyond Blue, Canberra and National Eating Disorders, which is part of the ACT Health. Could you add to that? Um, The Black Dog Institute has some some great uh, programs, information for you, and also anything to do with eating disorders, the Butterfly Foundation is the, the peak body and they do wonderful things with regards to eating disorders. Well, thank you, Kristen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on local current affairs program subject ACT. My name is Becca Posterino. You can tune into the program each weekday, 8.30 till 9am, or you can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook and Twitter at subject ACT. Thanks for your company today and enjoy your day. 